If you have your Bibles, could you take them and turn to Luke chapter 14, please? Uh, Luke chapter 14. We've been going through the book of Luke and looking at this series of encounters with Jesus Christ. This week will be uh, no different, although I do want to remind us of where we were last week because I think it's so critical as we, as we listen to the verses this week. So as we read last week, we read of this invitation that God has given, and it's a great invitation. It's an invitation that Jesus has extended, and it goes, goes to everyone. It's an invitation to come. Come to a banquet was the imagery that the Lord gave. And Jesus has laid it out there, this great invitation to come and to feast, and it doesn't matter. There's, like, there's nobody that's going to be disqualified from the feast, so everybody come. And when we go into the passage this week, that ought to be in our mind. So Jesus has just made this great offer, and now where is he, where is he going with that offer? How is he going to solidify the gains with the people that are following him? And take him up on that offer. So in Luke chapter 14 and verse, uh, let's begin reading verse 25. Luke 14, verse 25, to see this encounter with Jesus. Now great crowds accompanied him. So after the invitation, great crowds are accompanying him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters... Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, is not able to finish all who see it, begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build but wasn't able to finish Or what king going out to encounter another king of war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he'll send a delegation delegation and ask for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You wonder, is Jesus, is Jesus telling them about the fine print? We know what the fine print is. So we're listening to a radio advertisement and all of a sudden the voice starts talking like a million miles per second. Telling you a bunch of things you don't understand, but you know what's going on. It's the fine print. It's all the deal's not as good as you think it is. And we know, we know what that's going Or you get the, uh, the advertisement on tele- television talking about the, the new medicine, the pharmaceutical product. And it's this wonderful thing. It, it will cure everything. And, and then the thing turns, the music, just the tone shifts a little bit. But in rare cases, it's been known to cause this, 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 this. And in some cases, death. And you're like, whoa, whoa, I didn't know it caused that. You know, that gives you a little bit of caution. It's the fine print. It's, it's what I, I never really read when I'm downloading a new piece of software. I'm just like, let me scroll down to get to the, uh, sure, I agree. It's the waiver form where, you know, 15 pages, initial, 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 okay, yeah. 
And you just hope somewhere there's a good lawyer that if something bad happened, you could get you out of what you just signed, but you just wanted to hasten everything and couldn't move things forward. This is the fine print. Is that what Jesus is doing? Hey, don't blame me if you get into trouble. I told you. you. You knew. Is he trying to reduce his own liability? If someone gets jammed up following him? Is that, is that what's going on here? This just doesn't seem logical that you would follow a great invitation with a pretty crowd-thinning, like, what's it mean to really be my disciple? Is Jesus just all about truth and advertising? So he looks at this great crowd, and I think this great crowd probably, it's, he's attracted, like, there's a lot of potential disciples there who may, who could follow him. I don't know, when Jesus is healing and, like, feeding 5,000 hungry people and, like, dead are being raised... I would imagine that begins to generate some momentum. And in some ways, I wonder if it's a show. I wonder when Jesus walks into town, when he's doing something so rare, something so special, that maybe the whole village comes out and it's more like a parade. But what what Luke tells us is this is not a parade. It's actually more like a funeral procession because Jesus isn't just like the Pied Piper. He's going to Jerusalem to die on a cross. He knows that, but not everybody knows that. And so they're all kind of gathering. And what will Jesus do next? I don't want to miss it. I want to be there. I want to see it. Jesus talks like this. If you've, been re- if you've read through Luke, he talks like this in Luke 8, and he talks like this in Luke 9 and Luke 12. This is no new information like, you better count the cost. Following me isn't the, the easiest thing in the world. This is not new for Jesus. There's a real cost involved that will demand sacrifice and suffering. He's made all that clear in the past. What's he doing here? Why make the connection between this great banquet And what it means to be a disciple. Well, I think he's drawn some connections, and I just want to draw our attention. It's a pretty straightforward passage this morning. But I I think we need to hear it clearly. One of the connections that Jesus makes is he's connecting allegiance to being a disciple. So a disciple just means a learner, someone who's a a, a follower, someone who a student, someone who pays attention. But what Jesus is saying is it's not just information you're acquiring. There's allegiance attached to this. How do I know that's what he's talking about? It says so in verse 26. So Jesus is talking about discipleship and he says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, this is allegiance language. That's a fairly jarring passage when when you kind of start off with, if anyone, you know, wants to come after me and we all like... it's like, who wants candy in first grade? You know, everybody's raising their hand. But then, it, then the requirements start to be laid out, and he invites anyone, everyone's a potential disciple, but the condition that's spelled out is, it goes to family, and it says, you must hate. So this is what I'm not going to try to do. I'm not going to try to, like, take Jesus and, like, turn down the volume on Jesus. I think that's, like, any, any pastor or teacher that does that, you just, you just run the other direction. It's not my job to, to say, well, Jesus isn't, you know, he's, he's making less demands than you think. What I, what I do think is my job is to clarify and help you understand that word hate. Because, I mean, you would, you would be writing going, well, wait a minute. At one point, Jesus says, like, you ought to love your neighbor. But now he's saying, do you hate your neighbor? Do you feel this anger and animosity towards your mom and dad, whom Jesus endorses, like, honoring them? So how do you honor them but, but hate them? And that helps us understand this term over and over again, this word hate. is not used maybe in the same we do, way we do with just, like, anger toward. It's actually a comparative term, which actually doesn't lessen anything. 
So by all means, honor your father and mother. And even in your, this is not a license for, you know, if you just hate your sister or brother right now because they're making your life miserable, don't go to this verse. What Jesus is doing is drawing comparisons, right? And saying there ought to be such a gap. It's like he said in another place, no one can serve two masters. You either love one and hate the other. I mean, there's nobody serving two. It's a comparison term. Even other translations make this more clear. There's a wide gap. And you can't do like the combo. Well, I'll have a little of both, thank you. I'll have my family and I'll have my Jesus. This doesn't work like that. There's no no competitor. There's one that has allegiance so much so that everything else doesn't even compare in relational terms. Every, even good gifts that God gives us, even the natural affections that we have that you should have toward family, It's a choice of loyalty. Like, are you willing, in light of who has come to this earth, which is God, to say there will be no competing loyalty in my following him? him? Someone said it well. It's somewhat surprising that our natural affections are often what can undermine faithfulness to God and provide us with excuses to back down in our commitment. So we can say, well, I just love my family too much. It's interesting as I baptized at times, especially people that come from a different culture where Christianity is not prominent and preeminent, where there's no favors, no one's applauding when you, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and when you get baptized. There's a real recognition at times, in, even in the baptistry, like I am turning from even father and mother because my father and mother are not okay with this with this following of Jesus Christ. They're not okay, but I, I choose to follow him. And, and there we may get some of the real implications of this text, of what, what Jesus is saying. Jesus says there has to be something that comes first, and that is him. Remember the apostles, when Jesus called them to follow him, Jesus called them and they left everything. They left, their, they left their family, they left their father to follow him. And I think that gives us a glimpse into what it means. You must follow him. Allegiance is clear. The Being a disciple will not be half-hearted. It will be full-hearted allegiance. When Jesus says like father and mother and sister and, and brother, I mean, this is, this is big, but he says, if you don't hate your own life, to so in comparison... Jesus is saying, where where is your value for your own safety, your own security? A professor in Texas says this. He says, uh, this is David Garland. Jesus makes a total demand that would crush the autonomous spirit of those who want to do their own thing or who are in it for what they can get out of it. He does not want disciples who simply want to go along for the ride, soaking up his teaching while leaving fundamental values, loyalties, and a manner of life unchanged. For Jesus' discipleship is an either-or proposition and has to be entered into with fear and trembling because it requires transformation. So it really does expose our heart if we say, you know, this means I really, I really can't follow him because I value this. It just shows us what's going on, the, on in the heart. Or if there's something that, like, I would like to follow him, but I don't sense like an urgency because I've got this. If it's my family, if it's my ambition, if it's my life, if there's anything else to say because I want to do that, I just don't know that I can sign all the way in with Jesus. I think I could go a long, long way, but not all the way. 
I don't think I can just hand over the keys and say, it's yours. I don't think I can give my heart wholly and say, whatever you say, Lord, I don't think I can do that. That says a lot about our hearts. Sometimes it's hard to sort through, like, is something that's a good thing becoming too much? And for that, I'd say, if you're trying to sort out, like, where is my allegiance? Where is my loyalty? Is it where it's supposed to be? I would say, praise God for a church family where I can, I can meet and talk and go, help me sort through this. Because I wonder, I wonder if, like, when Jesus says the, the comparison ought to be, like, no comparison, I wonder if that's really going on in my heart. I wonder if I'm actually loving my life more than I'm really loving Jesus. Or at least trying to make it 50-50. Maybe going to someone and saying, could you pray with me about that? Or help me evaluate what's going on in my heart. There's another connection Jesus makes. So it's, it's an allegiance issue, but Jesus also makes another connection. In that connection, he connects suffering to being a disciple as well. Again, if I'm a pupil in a class, I'm a learner, I don't necessarily make that connection, but Jesus does. If you're going to be my disciple... It involves suffering. He makes that connection. Where does he make that connection? Verse 27. So he says, whoever, again, wants the invitation, all potential disciples, but, but whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. When we hear the cross and like bearing the cross, we, imme- we immediately go into figurative language. You know, so bearing your cross means like dealing with some hard stuff. And, and that's true. But I think we need to hear the cross as the, the first disciples of Jesus would have heard it. I mean, What was the cross for? It was an instrument of death, but not just any kind of death, but a shameful death. It's like no one looked at anybody carrying a cross or hanging on a cross and and thought they were an okay person. No, using this analogy means you have to be willing to take shame uh, upon yourself. Like when you look at a cross, you, you immediately would have assumed someone did something wrong. You don't get a nice picture of it around your neck or perhaps in your home. Actually, it's an instrument that says, like, someone did something wrong and they're paying for it. Or someone did something that ticked off the state and they're paying for it. And Jesus says, yeah, if you're not carrying it, if you're not bearing the cross, you can't be my disciple. The way of Jesus brings about suffering and bearing the cross wasn't something we did you know, five years ago, but it's a daily, daily thing. Other places would remind us of that. You never complete it. In our becoming a disciple, we will die. We will, have, we will be called to put things to death. And Bonhoeffer said it well. When Jesus bids a person to follow him, he bids him to come and die. Die to our flesh. Put to death desires and passions, dreams, things we want. We're, we endure hard times. We endure shame. Quite frankly, it would be easier to act on temptations. Be, be easier to act on temptations toward greed. But we recognize I'm to put that to death, even though it would feel wonderful. We put to death sexual temptations, whether that's same-sex temptations or heterosexual temptations. We put to death those temptations in in honor of pursuing Christ. We say, there, there's something, I'll bear my cross. It would be much easier to say, no thank you on the cross. I'll do what I want. I'll do what feels good. I'll do what I think I deserve, but we'll, we'll, we'll take the cross upon us. We'll put to death the pride in our heart, the, the desire for status and power and control. And while it feels really good to live large and be in charge and tell people what to do, we will, we will take a cross on and the cross will be humility and, and we'll lay aside the power and control that we could exercise. 
This is not easy. Becoming a disciple of Jesus, someone has said, is to embark on the stony path leading to an uncertain future in this life and the possibility that a cross will stand at the end of the road. I think Jesus might say, if you aren't prepared for suffering, you might be hanging around. You might keep hanging around, but you're not my disciple. If you're not willing to bear the cross... He connects something else, though, and he gives some analogies, but, but which, what, which I want to come back to. But in verse 33, he connects something else. He connects cost to being a disciple as well. He says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I mean, Jesus regularly goes here. Like he regularly goes to the possessions and like counting that cost and renouncing your possessions, giving your possessions away. Why? Because he knows our heart. We like stuff. We like things. We like our possessions. We like to acquire them. We like to stockpile them. We like to not just enjoy them, but over-enjoy them. Not just to appreciate them, but put our, our trust in them. See my bank account and see this house that, and, and this driveway I can pull into and see that my kids have this and, and I have that and see the roadmap for my economic security and see the car I drive and see all the stuff, see the newest gadget I have and look at it all. I've got stuff and we begin to find our trust in that. And not only that, we begin to find our identity so much so that if that stuff goes, it's, it's not like we're just sad. It's like our, we're devastated. Life's not worth the living if I can't live with all the things that make me comfortable. And Jesus says, following him will impact a standard of living. Stuff and possessions, things, it's strange. We have it, but then ultimately it turns the tables on it, doesn't it? And it has us. We find ourselves serving our stuff. So Jesus says, renounce it all. A good, good way of describing that is like, say goodbye. Are you, are you ready to do that? It's amazing to me. I, I so appreciate the sacrificial giving of our church. This is what I know. Some of you could have more stuff, more gadgets, have a different standard of living if you didn't give whatever percentage that you give to the Lord's work. You could have more. And it becomes real tangible that you will live on less because you're counting the cost of what it means to be his disciple. And maybe that we renounce our social standing, our desire to be cool, our desire for this buzz, that experience. Are we willing to go there? Are we willing to consider God's call to say goodbye to stuff? Are we even willing? Are we willing to even entertain the conversation? What there won't be is there's no lawyers in the back that are going to be signing you up to renounce all your stuff. I'm just asking for a thought experiment. Are you willing to let things go? That's a hard question. At this point, I can just press pause. It's like wise to recognize that if Jesus were a politician peddling this platform, if this was the stump speech... I think he would make it about one time and the city where his next rally would be would say, thanks, but no thanks. And I think he would make it to people looking kind of strange. You're promising this? Like we came here to be promised lots of things and you're promising this. But see, Jesus isn't 
like making a, a, a political speech here with earthly politics. There's something that, that, that even supersedes that. What he is calling on, he's, he's calling on something different. It's interesting. So he talks about allegiance, but let's be, let's be honest. Like people are loyal to lots of causes. He's not the only one talking about being loyal. He talks about suffering, but, but we can also recognize people endure suffering for lots of things. He talks about cost and people will voluntarily give up things for lots of reasons. I think Jesus is aiming at something different for those who would follow him. Jesus isn't just calling people to a certain philosophy. He's not just calling people to a certain religion. He's not just calling people to check the box of, well, what religion are you? I'm Christian. That's my faith tradition. Not calling any of that. He's not calling people to a moral code. So what exactly is he calling people to? What you begin to realize is he's calling people not to a thing, but to a person himself. That's who he's calling people to. When he says follow, he's not just saying, here's a rule book, follow that. Here's a manifesto, follow that. As a matter of fact, it it couldn't be more clear. In verse 26, he says, "If, if you want to come to me, Not come to it, but come to me. If you want to be a disciple, that's not what he says. If you want to be my disciple, this is what it's going to take. In verse 27, we're told we can come after him. It gets very, very personal. Discipleship is becoming more like Jesus. The connections are to a person. He pushes us to recognize all that he's been talking about. It's not about an idea or a philosophy, or a religion, but he's talking about a person. He pushes us to recognize that he must be our only treasure. Well, that changes lots of things. It changes lots of things if we're called on to give our soul allegiance to a person. So much so that nothing compares. The choice, interestingly enough, is not between Jesus and the devil. It's far more subtle than that. It's between Jesus and our strongest allegiances. Jesus and family, Jesus and business, Jesus and profit, Jesus and success. When he says, I'm not calling you to be loyal to an idea, I'm calling you to be loyal to me. That changes everything. When he says, I am telling you to, to take on the cross, bear the cross, It's just for an idea. That's different than he says, it's for me. When he says, I want you to renounce all you have for me. Why that is so different for me. Why that changes everything, not just an idea, but a person, particularly Jesus Christ. Is that we we sang about what Jesus did for us. We sang about him leaving like the, the glories of heaven and coming to this earth. We sang about him like being mocked and made fun of. We sang about him being crucified for us, for you. We sang about him in all his power rising from the dead. That is the individual. That is the God-man saying, follow me. I think about that from just like all of what, what Jesus has done. I, I just think about that very personally. I don't know, even as we were singing and worship, 
So we began to process. So with me, it, it certainly is very personal. I grew up in a family with a mom and dad whose life had just been way, way, way off the rails. The, the stigma and this, the difficulty of broken marriages goes way, way deep in the Hill family tree and the Lund family tree from, from my mom's side. Until this person, Jesus, came into their lives and changed it and changed it and took a broken home and slowly made this a home for his glory. And I saw, I, I got to see how like, my parents' lives were changed by this person. And then, and then the Lord did something in my own heart as I began learning about this person. And I learned, you know, all these wonderful songs about Jesus loves me, this I know, and all these, I mean, amazing things. But then there comes like, you have to have your own encounter. You have to have your own encounter with Jesus Christ. And I remember even as a child, Jesus calling my name and, and calling me into his family. And then I could just look and plot whether it's the points where I was an adolescent or a point when I was a teenager or a point when I was a college student or a point when I was just, just out of college and a graduate student or a point when I was a new dad or, or a point when I was learning uh, what it meant to be a, a, a godly husband. And I can just see a place and, and a point where I was called to be a pastor. And I just look at all these places and I think, this person, Jesus Christ, has made such a difference in my life over these 39 years that when when he says, follow me, and when he says, it's going to take allegiance, and, and you're going to have to renounce everything else, and when he says, will you bear the cross, and I have this years and years and years of history with him, it changes everything. It changes everything, and I wonder if it changes for you. It's not an idea that's calling you. It's a person. Will you follow him? Jesus says, let's, let's not play games. Count the cost. You ever seen someone like start to build something and stop? It's, a, it's an issue of like, what kind of person were they? And it's like an honor and shame issue. Jesus says everybody walks by and mocks. Man, they, that guy started it, couldn't finish it. Jesus says, consider as you make this step toward me that there's this honor shame going. And, and while you may bear some shame on this earth, there's ultimate honor. You will never be ashamed. In, in New Jerusalem, in the new heavens and new earth, you will never be ashamed that you made this decision. You will never be ashamed. While it, while it may create some awkward moments in middle school and high school and college, while it may be an awkward moment with a coworker, count the cost, but you will never, you will never live in shame. If you follow Christ... Count the cost with the armies. The, you know, if you have 10,000, like, can we do this? We're facing 20,000. Can we like, have a different strategy and handle the warfare with 10,000? Count the cost because what's at, at stake is survival and destruction. If you send this army and it's not good enough, you've, you're, you're going to get obliterated. Count the cost. It's one thing if it's earthly survival and destruction. It's another thing if it's eternal. Count the cost. Jesus even brings up salt and saying, you know, salt was made for a purpose, but what if that purpose, what if it turns into like a half-hearted disciple is like useless salt? It, it makes no, it's not good for anything. Count the cost. Count the cost. Count the cost for who Jesus is. That's the one calling you. Think about your history with Jesus Christ, and that's the one calling you, calling on your allegiance.
calling on you to bear the cross. Calling on you to renounce everything and be prepared to say, let it all go. If I have Christ. If you look at the end of the chapter, you're kind of looking for a response. Like, well, what did they do? Was it crowd thinning? Yeah, that day lost half of his followers. What we, we don't know. We don't know. So my question actually is less about what did they do and more about what do we do? As you're counting the cost of following him, I think just, just to kind of be intellectually honest, you ought to count the cost also of not following him. Where's that going to take you? Life on your own? Life playing games with God? Where's that going to take you? In all fairness, count, count that cost too. A look at Jesus reminds us. Jesus never calls us to go to a place where he didn't go. You want to talk about allegiance. Jesus always did the will of his father. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We talk about allegiance and loyalty. You want to talk about like bearing a cross? Before Jesus would say to bear his cross, just recognize he bore ours. That's the cross he was bearing. It's the cross we deserved. We should have carried it and we should have just been trotted up on the cross and hung there for our own sin. That would have been justice. So when he says bear the cross, just recognize he's not only carried it, he's been crucified on it, been victorious over it. And he says, take, take it on. Take on suffering. Take it on. When, when we talk about costs, could anyone have given more than Christ? Could anyone have renounced more? Like none of us in here have renounced heaven to be obedient to the will of the Father. And that's exactly what Christ did. The only way to follow him is, the only way to be his disciple is to place your faith in what he did to turn from your sin and your righteousness. And, and, and turn to him and trust his righteousness, his forgiveness for your sin. When I read a passage like this, I don't, I don't know where your heart goes. My heart goes in two directions, and I feel like it's just like a tug of war because there's part of my heart that says, that's exactly what I want to do. When I think of the history I have with the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to say, absolutely. And so my heart's just flooded with good intentions. And then it's met with like the realism of knowing, oh my goodness, I'm like these disciples. That I'm imagining they're all going, we are in. We'll do that, Jesus. We'll leave everything and follow you. We'll never deny you. We'll sacrifice the world for you. And their hearts would be so flighty and fluctuated in a moment. And I'd be like, that's, that's where I am. It's good for us to be reminded that God knows us in, even in our weakness. Even where we have those ambitions, where we make those promises today. I, I, I really mean it, Jesus. This time I'm going to follow you. I'm going to turn my back on things. I'm going to endure suffering. I'm going to, I'm going to be faithful in temptation. And I'm, I'm going to, for all for you, Jesus. And he knows even where that, that good intention of our heart often doesn't produce the fruit we'd like to see over time. But listen, this is Jesus who began a good work, who also will complete it. This is Jesus who, 
want to talk about allegiance. He's, he's loyal to you. No one's going to pluck you out of the Father's hand. He's loyal. He's with you to the very end. He's going to continue to sanctify and strengthen you. I love the way Scotty Smith says it. It's, it's really heartening to know that we don't have to feel guilty. We don't have to fake strength. We don't have to make excuses in God's presence because he meets us as a loving father, not as a disgruntled coach. He meets us with the gospel, not with the scorecard. He meets us with a smile, not a scowl. He meets us with encouragement, not disgruntlement. Hallelujah, what a kind and welcoming father he is. He is working today, long-term, in our life to make us more like Jesus. Friends, what he will do is he will use our our sins and our good initiatives. And he'll use our stumbles and our joy and our pain and our sorrow and he'll continue to move us more and more to be like Jesus Christ. Let's count the cost. And then church, let's follow him with all of our heart. And I ask you to bow your head. In a moment, the team that's leading us in worship is going to probably introduce some new words, although the melodies certainly won't be new uh, to most. The words are going to focus our hearts on all glory is to Christ. All glory to him for what has been done, what will be done. Father, Take our ambition and our intentions and produce good fruit. Take our fears and our failures and our stumbling, and I pray that we would stumble toward you, not away from you. Be merciful to us, and we pray that our lives would be lived in such a way that we'd say, all glory is yours forever. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.